You are listening to Chthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Chthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin McLeod. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast that deals with the Dark Feminine. Uh, I'm your host, Breach Burke. And for the month of November, we are going to look at a couple of Egyptian goddesses. Uh, As I had mentioned, um, we had finished the Matrika series. We've spent pretty much the whole year on Hinduism and Hindu, um, you know, the Matrikas, the Mahavidyas. Um, There are others that we could talk about, but I think, um, you know, we're going to, you know, we've stopped with that. We did the the Halloween episode on the Morrigan. And now we're going to, I'm going to look at a couple, take a little detour and look at a couple of Egyptian goddesses for the month of November. Uh, And in December, I'm actually going to take another detour and start looking at some winter goddesses, um, you know, both in folklore um, and in myth uh, from, you know, mainly from the Nordic, or at least from the Northern European. So we'll do that. And then next year is going to be a whole, a whole nother, whole, whole different exciting schedule, which we will, we'll talk about. But uh, for now, we're going to talk uh, in this particular podcast about the goddess Sekhmet, okay? Pardon me for a moment there. Um, Sekhmet is, okay, she is considered to be an aspect of either the god, well, mainly of the goddess Hathor, who is the cow-headed goddess. She's considered to be a goddess of love, fertility, dancing, you know, she's very, she's kind of like an Aphrodite-type figure. Um, and she's usually seen in the form of a cow. Now, Sekhmet is considered to be her fierce aspect and often appears with the head of a female lion. Um, so we so we have this this uh, this ferocious goddess. She is considered to be the daughter of Ra, the sun god, and her husband is Ta, who is the creator god of the universe. Okay, so um, Sekhmet uh, and and her her son. With the god Ta is Nefertum, who is the god of healing. Um, Sekhmet is involved with being, um, she's, her name actually means powerful, okay? So she is, she is the powerful one. Her image was used a lot by pharaohs in, um, you know, they, you know, when they were going to war, particularly um, the image of Sekhmet or sometimes they were even said to be the direct children of Sekhmet, or there'd be there'd be statuary of the, of her uh, suckling them as infants, and the idea there is that you know this this very powerful warrior like goddess is um, you know is is sort of the um, you know has has brought brought forth these pharaohs, who presumably also have her attributes. Um, so again, we she she's she's very complicated in in her way. But she is, uh, sometimes she's considered to be identical with Hathor and other myths, the two of them are, end up be separating. Uh, and sometimes, too, she's brought, um, considered to be um, with the goddess uh, Bast or Bastet, who is the, god- the cat goddess, which makes sense because if Bast is, has the head of a cat and she has the head of the lioness, I mean, these are, you know, both feline associations. So it's not too too difficult. Sometimes she's associated in we you know some associate her with uh, lower Egypt, but often I think she's more often than not she's associated with upper Egypt. Which, um, contrary to to what you might your logic might be, is actually the south of Egypt rather than the north. Um, and and the reason for that is they said that you know there's far more lions in the in the south of Egypt, so um, it, you know having a lion representation there 
uh, made sense. So, okay, let me see um, what else we want to say about her. Um, yes, associated with, um, with Hathor, her main cult center was in Memphis, uh, where she was worshipped as the destroyer alongside her consort Ta, the creator, and Nefertim, the healer. Um, she was represented by the searing heat of the midday sun. In this aspect, she was sometimes called Nesert, the flame, and was a terrifying goddess. However, for her friends, she could avert plague and cure disease. She was the patron of physicians and healers, and her priests became known as skilled doctors. As a result, the fearsome deity, sometimes called the Lady of Terror, was also known as the Lady of Life. Hmm, where have we seen that motif before? Sekhmet was mentioned a number of times in the spells of the Book of the Dead as both creative and destructive force, but above all, she is the protector of Ma'at, the balance or justice. Really, the, the better translation of that is living truth. Uh, and she is named as the one who loves Ma'at and who detests evil. Uh, she was also known as the Lady of Pestilence and the Red Lady, indicating her alignment with the desert, and she was often associated with the hot winds of the desert. And it was thought she could send plagues against those who angered her. Uh, when the center of power shifted from Memphis to Thebes during the New Kingdom, uh, the Theban triad, Amun, Mut, and Khonsu, uh, Sekhmet's attributes were absorbed into that of Mut, who sometimes took the form of a lion. Uh, she was associated with goddesses given the title the Eye of Ra, which we'll talk about. Okay, so so that's, that's sort of the definition of Sekhmet um, and who she is. Uh, in her Hathor aspect, um, she, well, in, 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 in her, as you know, she's, she's considered to be an aspect of Hathor, but Hathor herself is sometimes considered to be both the mother, uh, acting as a mother too, and also as the wife of the god Horus, okay, who was the child of Osiris and Isis. Um, now the main story we have, I'm going to talk about the main story connected with Sekhmet, and then I'm going to talk about um, probably three or four of her attributes. And, um, and then the lastly, I'm going to talk about the seven Hathors, okay, which are the kind of the Egyptian equivalents of the fates. Um, and, I, and of course, I'm, I am going to talk about Hathor because she is so closely connected to Sekhmet. Okay, so first let's give the main story of Sekhmet that is known. It's not that there aren't others or that she isn't mentioned other places, but this is the main um, narrative associated with her as the Eye of Ra. Um, according to myth, Ra became angry because mankind was not following his laws and preserving Ma'at. He decided to punish mankind by sending an aspect of his daughter, the Eye of Ra. He plucked Hathor, okay, now there's our connection Hathor, from the Urias on his brow. The Urias, by the way, is the royal serpent. When you see the Egyptian, um, the pharaoh headdresses with the serpent on them, that's what it's referring to. And he sent it to the earth in the form of a lion. She became Sekhmet and began her rampage. The fields ran with blood, human blood. Now, by the way, they don't say exactly how she attacks people, whether she's sending them, they're dying from plagues, whether she's literally physically attacking them, or whether she's burning them up, because that was another frequent thing that it would send that if, if Sekhmet rode by, she would burn, you know, burn up the flesh of the enemies. Um, but anyway, the fields ran red with human blood. However, Ra was not a cruel deity, and the sight of carnage caused him to repent. He ordered her to stop, but she was in such a bloodlust she would not listen. So Ra poured 7,000 jugs of beer and pomegranate juice, which stained the beer blood red, in her path. She gorged on the blood, quote-unquote, and became so drunk she slept for three days. When she awoke, her bloodlust had dissipated and humanity was saved. 
In one version of the myth, Ta is the first thing she sees on awakening and instantly she falls in love with him. Their union, creation and destruction, created nephritim healing and so reestablished Mahat. Yes, because healing is the way in which one rebalances after destruction. Okay, so this, this union with Ta and the union with the creator, you know, the creator and the destroyer. Um, if I think about Hindu mythology and I think about Shiva as kind of serving both of those roles, but if you think of Parvati as also being Kali, you can also see um, where, you know, where she also embodies creation and destruction. So, you know, there's, there's that fine line there. And it's not the kind of, even, you know, even in Egypt, which each Egyptian thought, I think, is probably in a lot of ways, the origins, you know, a lot of the origin of Western civilization probably uh, comes at least, at least in part out of Egypt, because Egypt civilization was older than a lot of um, what we think of as the traditionally the oldest Western civilizations, like the Minoan or the Mycenaean. Um, this, you know, the, the Egyptians were around for a lot longer. And uh, certainly there was um, Egyptian ideas, uh, just, just as uh, Persian ideas also made their way into the Greek mainstream. Um, so this story, now does this story sound familiar at all? Um, now if you've listened to my Kali podcast, then you know that this is a very, this is very similar, I mean not, not exactly the same, but it's very similar to what um, happens with Kali you know she is um she you know is she's destroying these demons who are who are destroying the world so again you have this idea of corruption to the point that um you know the this negative Shakti is activated and the goddess now is is rampaging through destroying everything in her path and the gods can't stop her because she's in a bloodlust uh, now, in the Kali story, her husband Shiva lays down in front of her, and she, as soon as she sees him, she stops. She, she comes back into awareness out of her bloodlust, and she stops. In this one, they get her drunk. So, And, and actually, the festival commemorating Sekhmet uh, involves everybody getting extremely drunk. It's like, what a great excuse for a party. But, um, but that was it. the way that they, this, this festival is described. <clears throat> Everyone drank beer stained with pomegranate juice and worshipped the mistress and lady of the tomb, gracious one, destroyer of rebellion, mighty one of enchantments. A statue of Sekhmet was dressed in red facing west, while Bast, her cat goddess counterpart, was dressed in green and faced east. Bast was sometimes considered to be Sekhmet's counterpart or twin, depending on the legend, and in the festival of Hathor they embody the duality central to Egyptian mythology. Sekhmet represented Upper Egypt, while Bast represented Lower Egypt. Okay. Um, now that, that central myth about her, okay, so we see her in this bloodlust, we see her in this lioness form. Now, who else have we seen in the lioness form? Narasimhi, which is the Shakti of one of the avatars of Vishnu, of Narasimha, who, um, you know, who destroys yet another demon. And what she definitely has in common with Narasimhi is that Narasimhi is definitely She's a hater of all things evil. Um, her other name is what? Pratangira, which has to do with the removal of black magic. So if there's any kind of, you know, um, what, what are considered to be curses or ill dealings, um, Narasimhi is, it goes into a rage and will destroy the person who does it. Similarly, those who do not preserve Ma'at or this living truth uh, will be destroyed by Sekhmet. Now, what is this living truth? I think that's something that's worth talking about. Maat is also represented as a goddess. Um, and she is, 
and this and this living truth, um, I, I can compare it to the Greek concept of decay, which is also translated as justice. Okay. Now, in our very ethical way of thinking about religion and myth, um, the kind of didactic or moral way that we tend to think about things, I think what the original concept was maybe, I don't want to say it's lost, but it's buried a little bit because we tend to think of it about as I'm preserving good and I'm fighting evil. And I don't think that's exactly what's going on here. Okay. First of all, um, okay, if we think about, I, I'm going to go back to the Greek just to, because it's, it's easier to grab onto in terms of the mythologies that we know and, um, you know, the concept that you can kind of wrap your mind around. DK was described as um, an appropriate setting of boundaries or limitations. And uh, the ruler or the king, um, their, their, whole, their whole function really was to maintain those boundaries. Um, it was discussed, uh, Zeus is discussed as the king of the gods. And it's like, you know, Zeus has a lot of powers. He can do a lot of things. But he doesn't act in certain ways because it would disrupt the divine, that divine sense of decay, that um, divine justice. Now, it seems to also be connected with order, with the idea of themis in, in Greek myth. Um, you know, but at the same time, chaos is also in, included in it. Like there's, there's a place and a role for chaos. So, you know, so it's not that that isn't part of it. It's not like, oh, here we have the good placid side over here and here we have the evil chaotic side over here. They're not, they're dynamic. They work in concert with each other. Um, and they and there are forces that are continually kind of spinning around, interacting with each other. And sometimes they work together harmoniously. Other times they work together. You know, there there's there's conflict. And this is when you might have war. Uh, if it's really out of if things really get out of balance or really get off kilter, then um, you might have a destruction and kind of a, a a redoing of the whole thing. So if you think about those kinds of dynamics. Um, we're not really talking about good and evil here, but we are talking about like what kind of behaviors. And I think the, the, the term preserver, which we also see associated with Vishnu, is important here. Preserving um, the, the system as it's supposed to be. And we don't always know what that is. And it's not that it doesn't involve chaos, but it does involve some kind of a... I don't know, divine social rule, if you will, about, you know, what's what's okay to do and what's not okay to do um, under certain circumstances. And it doesn't necessarily exclude the things that you would think. Um, we always tend to think of morality in terms of not only right behavior, like, oh, you don't kill, you don't steal, and, and so on, like Ten Commandments kind of stuff. We tend to think of it that way. And also about adultery and, and, and things like that. It's not necessarily thought of in that way. In fact, one of the chief rules that the Greeks had had to do with hospitality, um, that you welcomed the stranger, okay? You welcomed the foreigner into your house and you gave them gifts, and the idea was that, you know, then when you went to the foreign land, you would also be welcomed. And any, that was a rule that if you violated it, like the gods came down on you very hard for that because there's this idea of, um, you know, that you, um, even though you have your own tribe and your own boundary, um, you know, there's, there's a certain uh, respectful way of dealing with things that come, or people or situations that come from outside the boundary. And um, as, as later myths from Ovid reveal, you know, sometimes you don't always know when it's the god themselves who are coming to you. So you need to, you need to always um, 
you know, behave in that, that sort of more magnanimous way and not in a selfish way. It's, it's sort of like an inherent check on um, sort of default human tendencies, if you will. Um, but the idea of Ma'at is living truth. It's, it's just, you know, living, living, living a true life according to the true way. And, and, and that's, it, it's, it's very complicated to describe because we always think of justice and things like that. You can think of it as actions and consequences, but it's not necessarily the strictly legal way that we think about it. So I am hope I'm explaining that well enough. I'm probably not because it's very hard to get a concrete example of what that looks like. Um, but it is it does kind of relate to one of the things I really like about Hindu mythology, which is that the gods and the demons interact with each other. And it's not that they're always necessarily enemies or that they, you know, that the demons don't necessarily practice, you know, austerities. And, you know, I mean, they do them for different reasons, but they're both acknowledged as forces that make up the universe and that are supposed to be there. So they're actually all part of that living truth. But it's a question of when, you know, you know, one takes over to the exclusion of the other, when, when things are forced out of balance. So that's the best way I can describe it. And so this is what Sekhmet preserves. She, you know, when you, when you have a situation where, um, you know, and it seems like you hear about this a lot, you know, humans start out, you know, everything's fine, and then they, they gradually become more and more corrupted. And it's because human behavior, I mean, we, we have some very noble characteristics, as I've said, and we have some really, you know, savage and awful and what we would call, what we would call psychopathic or sociopathic tendencies as well. So, you know, there's an acknowledgement that the, about this complexity of human behavior and having to have some kind of a, you know, not necessarily the kind of strict moral and ethical codes that we have, but just more of a sense of, you know, a sense of, you know, sense of equity or a sense of fairness, a sense of, you know, what, what keeps things in balance and what is good for me, but also good for the other person. Um, and that frequently does not happen, um, especially when you get into larger groups, especially when you have people who are seized by certain uh, vices like greed. Um, it makes it very difficult. I think this is why Eastern religions tend to de-emphasize the material world because this is where people can, can fall out of balance um, by, you know, the, the, the balance between what they call too much and too little. So, um, so there's this, this concept that this is um, why Sekhmet exists. And that would also explain why she's related to the pharaohs in that way because not only are they great warriors, but the idea is that they are um, eminently just and fair by aligning themselves with Sekhmet and that they are hateful of anything that is not just and fair. Um, okay, so what else do I have here? Now, the, 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 the plagues and the healing thing is interesting. The fact that she can send plagues, uh, that makes her like Apollo. And, and Apollo uses those plagues usually to administer justice. Again, there's when there's an imbalance. For instance, um, at the beginning of um, Homer's Iliad, you know, there's a plague that's been sent because um, Agamemnon wrongs uh, uh, Croesus, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the priest of Apollo, when he comes to him and, and, and makes the, the correct off, you know, um, supplication to him, and then he just turns him away. And then Apollo, you know, he prays to Apollo, and Apollo sends a plague on the Greek uh, or Achaean armies. Apollo also sends a plague in the Oedipus myth after Oedipus has killed his father and married his mother. That's, again, something outside of the boundaries. Um, we can also think of that as being related to the Furies or the Arrhenius, because that was their, their way. 
the, they were very, very old. They were older, as old as the Titans, if not older. They were sort of Titan goddesses. And the Arrhenius would there, you know, uh, Heraclitus had said if, if uh, the sun were to move like one inch out of its correct orbit, the Arrhenius would push it back. They're there to maintain this order, and they were particularly there to maintain order in the family. You can listen to that podcast if you um, want to delve into that. But the Arrhenius, so in this way, you know, Sekhmet has, an you know, an aspect of her that's like the Furies. It's, you know, when, when things are, you know, or, and, or of Narasimhi more, more directly because, you know, they're both lion-headed goddesses. There's this idea that, you know, um, they will savagely go after anyone who um, disrupts that, those boundaries that have been set, that, that are not to be traversed um, by, by humans. And in some cases, not even by gods. Okay. And that also leads me to another connection there. And this is of the, um, the seven Hathors, which are the Egyptian fates. Now, in the story of Joseph in the Bible, where he uh, interprets Pharaoh's dream, and he sees seven we um, healthy kine, meaning cows, and seven weak ones, this is a reference to Hathor, because she's the seven Hathors that appear, and of course Hathor always appears as a cow rather than a lion. And the seven Hathors are also the fates. They decide the fate of every Egyptian from birth to death and what kind of life they are. And if they have a soul that is has that appears to be inauspicious and that that soul is supposed to be a prince of Egypt, they will swap it out for another another soul that um, with a more auspicious uh, life ahead of it um, is what, what was believed. And thus they project protected Egypt in that way. But if you think about that, if you think about the fury, you know, this idea of the furies and the fates, um, we also talked about the Morrigan and her connection to the fate, to fate and to prophecy. Um, there's this, so you, you have this, 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 um, sort of triad here again, you have, um, you know, sort of this, this, this destroyer and, you know, healer kind of motif, you have, um, you know, this preserver of justice, and then you have this connection to fate. So, you know, even though Sekhmet is not directly considered to be, like, dealing with the seven Hathors, the fact that Hathor, you know, that Sekhmet is an aspect of Hathor um, does sort of make that connection there. Uh, and, that, and that does, both of those things directly connect them to the, the concept uh, of the Arrhenius, the idea of these uh, female deities that um, are, are there to enforce and preserve these boundaries. Now, in, in Greek mythology, it's the Morai who are the fates, um, the three ladies who are, who are spinning, and that's also the same in the Roman. And, you know, they, they spin the, th the thread of life, and they, um, you know, uh, measure it out the length of your life, and then they cut it. Uh, and in Plato's view, um, then, you know, people uh, drew lots to decide what, what kind of life they were going to have. But in any case, um, that's, 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 a, that's a separate discussion that you can read if you um, go back to the vision of Ur and the Republic. But it's, yeah, it, it's, it, there's, it's, it's, it's very interesting how you have these, um, you know, th this, this great concern of these, these feminine figures who are both, who can be either... Um, you know, who can be very monstrous, but also they can um, bring great prosperity in other aspects. Because um, as I said, Hathor is a love goddess. I mean, she she does a striptease for the god Ra when he's depressed. I mean, she's you know, there's definitely um, the, the, you know there's definitely also this connection between these kinds of figures and and sex. Um, just as Ishtar, I mean, oftentimes Hathor is, is um, associated with Ishtar because Hathor slash Sekhmet has these has this aspect of being a love goddess, but also being a goddess of war and destruction. Um, 
and 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 you have to think about again what is what is the commentary there on um on the feminine or on how females are how females are you know what 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 the feminine with a capital f as opposed to you know uh biological women okay and i always try to make that distinction because frequently i hear people when we talk about the masculine and feminine they're like well i'm a woman so everything i do is feminine i'm like no it's not it's not how that's not how that works um the feminine and the masculine are you know the, these are concepts if you you know like i said i always say with a capital m with a capital f because these are distinct, you know, and these are qualities that both men and women have. Men and women both have masculine and feminine qualities. I know I've said this before till I'm blue in the face, but it's, this is what it comes down to. And the feminine is something that's warlike. It also has to do with desire and attraction and with sex. And, we, and interestingly, in, in Western religion, all of those things, um, you know, are, are associated with things that are dangerous or sinful or... You know, so that's why you have like, you know, succubus figures and you have the, the, the character of Lilith and things like that, that, that kind of portray the feminine as something um, to be suspicious of or to be kept under control because, you know, you see how it is when it gets out of control, right? Um, but you see the mythologies behind this. But see, the mythologies are not intended to make you um, feel like the person who wants to conquer that is the weak person, Okay. If you have to eliminate everything that's that's scary to you, um, that's usually a sign of cowardice. That's not a sign of strength. That's not something, you know, that's why in, in, in heroic ideals, the idea is that the hero confronts that energy knowing, you know, maybe not knowing that he's weak, but he'll certainly learn it by the end of it. And sometimes there's the idea of, you know, being swallowed by the great uh, beast that the feminine represents. Or, you know, or like the, the, the story of uh, Tiamat and Marduk, I think of, in the Babylonian, where Tiamat is a great serpent, but she's also the great mother of the earth. And when she's slown, uh, she, when Marduk slays her, um, and the reason that she gets angry is because um, the gods have gone and killed some of her, you know, killed her lover, and, you know, and, you know, and she gets very, very angry, and she brings this, this terrifying army against the gods, and Marduk stands up. And he battles her, and he ends up cutting her into the pieces, which later become the firmament of the earth. Okay? So, you know, so you have this, again, this fine line between creation and destruction. And the feminine as something, um, you know, serpentine or as something, you know, that can be monstrous. In this case, we have the feminine uh, in this leonine aspect, um, looking like a lion. And that, and that, and again, they, she is directly connected to the midday sun. So she's, you know, associated because the sun, of course, brings light and life and, and all of these good things. But she's associated with that aspect of the sun that can bring destruction, that can bring drought. OK, that can, um, you know, burn people up, uh, heat exhaustion, heat stroke, the things that can then kill you having to do with heat, especially if there's no relief from it or just, you know, the, the flames of the sun turning into a scorching fire um, that, you know, that destructive aspect. Um, that we also see in um, some of the matricas as well. So, you know, yeah, there's this, you know, this, this association, you know, fire is always the, often the example given with magic. You know, it can cook your food, it can burn your house down. Which aspect are we looking at here? Um, but it's not that, you know, we're not going to call fire evil because it does that. You know, it's just, it's saying, you know, you, you have to handle it with respect and with care when you use it. Okay, it's not that you can't. You know, that you can't, um, you know, but you have to be, um, you know, the, there, there's part of that, that, that living truth there. There's, there's, there's a way to handle this that's proper and there's a way that um, is going to be destructive.
so that is that is the thing to think about with forces, um, the forces that we've been talking about. And Sekhmet here is another one. Um, and but but again, she's there. She's always acting in in accordance with with the divine. It's just that um, you know, like with Ra when she gets unleashed, uh, she um, you know she she gets out of control because she's ingested so much of this blood and it, and it, it sends her into a frenzy, which may be, of course, a representation of how, you know, too much of these things that we have, too much of the, of the flesh of the, of the world can, you know, if we're not careful, can send us off into that, that kind of, um, you know, that, that extreme, we'll call it. I think we'll call it that. So I think that's mainly what I want to say about Sekhmet. Um, she is, like I said, she's the wife of Ta, who is the creator god. She's the destroyer. He's the creator. And they bring about a god of healing as their child. And then she, of course, becomes this um, patroness of physicians and so forth. So interesting how there's the kind of the, the motif there of out of destruction um, comes healing and, and renewal and regeneration. So uh, Ta, in that way, does seem to be her ideal partner. Um, we've seen her in, you know, the, her relationship to the Hathor aspect and, you know, how Hathor is this, um, you know, this love goddess. Um, but, it, but at some point in one of the versions of the myth, Hathor splits off from Sekhmet and becomes the wife and the mother of Horus and turns her attention to, you know, fertility and childbirth and things like that. And it's interesting that they say that the two of them, quote unquote, split off as though they're no longer part of each other. And uh, that would be interesting to kind of see when, when in the, um, you know, the, I'm not sure if it's the pyramid texts or the coffin texts without appears. I have to look up the exact reference, but it would be very interesting to see if that, you know, um, where that break occurs. Because once you start, start separating these aspects and splitting them up, um, now you're moving into a, a different field. I mean, I, I do wonder if it has to do with um, Egyptian monotheism when, um, Ankhenaten decides to only have the worship of Aten and, and, you know, tries to get rid of all the rest of it. Now, he's not successful. Eventually, the, the priestly caste rise up and these other gods, uh, you know, Osiris certainly he couldn't get rid of. But uh, trying to, to bring these back, you know, generally that monotheistic impulse, there, there's a tendency to want to um, separate out the feminine, to only keep the, the pieces of it that, are, that, that make people comfortable. Um, but the other is part of it, and that's... Um, this is what this is what Chthonia is trying to teach you to appreciate the fact that yes, there is this aspect, and yes, it's scary, but it does have its place, and you know it's it's a matter of showing it the proper respect, not trying to beat it under your control, um, because ultimately that always fails, and there there's always a negative consequence to that, um, and that is only a move of the cowardly, um, you know, people who are. You know, and and to be fair to people, I mean, life is life is hard, and there are things we just don't want to face, and would like to stick our heads in the sand and and walk away from. But the reality is, is at some point everything has to be faced. So, um, you know, we we look at these realities for what they are, and you know, so and and the message is sort of, you know with regard to the maat is that you. You know, we, we go, we move through our lives. We act in the way that we feel um, is what you know what you might call right action. Um, and part of that is recognizing that while we have many, many possibilities and many things that we can do, and we have lots, we have we, we have lots of faculties and powers as humans. There's also places where we're limited, and a lot of times there needs to be an acknowledging 
of where those limits are without being resentful and without, um, you know, without starting another war. Um, it's because it's when we decide we need to move beyond reasonable limits that things get out of control. And again, it depends on what you're talking about. Um, some, things, some things may have no limit, but uh, there's a lot in, of things in life that, you know, once we get a taste of one, then we decide, oh, we, you know, that, that was like the myth in, in um, Hindu mythology of Raktavija, the seed of desire. Once, once you've had one, you know, when, once you have one and you think you've destroyed the one, like, you know, a hundred others come up where that one, you know, left off. It's, 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 it's something that, that just continually goes on and on and on until it's checked. And in these mythologies, it's usually checked by um, an angry feminine figure um, who either devours it, swallows it, or um, just flat out kills and destroys it in some other way. So these, um, you know, you know, so that so that that overextension, that overgreed, can lead to that de- that that sent that uh, feminine devouring, that that destruction that uh, that time has. <clears throat> Excuse me. So that's what all I have for this week. Um, and next time we're going to talk about. Um, <clears throat> Uh, what are we talking about next week? Let me look at my list. Uh, Tawaret, who is the hippo goddess, um, who is, a, you know, associated with um, protection, particularly protection of children uh, in ancient Egypt. So we will talk about her in the next episode. Um, in the meantime, I would like to uh, thank all my Patreon listeners. Um, and if you would like to become a patron, there's going to be a lot of cool stuff coming up. I do some free giveaways. Um, I'm going to be launching the Chthonia Learning Channel soon. In fact, I might have already launched it by the time this podcast is live. Um, and, you know, and if so, you know, there's discounts on classes. Um, you know, at, at the very minimum, there's there's early access to these podcasts, uh, which are posted on metapsychosis.com. And there's all of this... Um, you know, and, and, you know, there's going to be, you know, like I said, when I have new books and stuff coming out, patrons are the first ones to know about new things that are going on and um, are the ones who are going to either, you know, get discounts or get free stuff and also extra podcast episodes and things like that. Usually done for the YouTube format because that's that's just the easiest thing to do with Patreon. Um, but there's there's all kinds of extra stuff. So if you want to become a patron, it's patreon.com slash Chthonia. To see a summary of all of my work that I do here, go to Chthonia.net. If you are interested in uh, a re- you know any of the sessions that I do in the liminal my liminal Reiki practice, which I talk about on Chthonia.net under related services, but I also have a separate website called liminalreiki.com. And even though I talk about tarot and Reiki there in particular, um, I actually do a combination of things. Sometimes I bring in astrology. Sometimes I bring in other oracles. Um, sometimes we do what they call, you know, amplification, mythological um, looks at, at things, looking at dream work and stuff, whatever the person happens to need. But in short, like the, the whole system is there to try to help people move through transitions, uh, difficult ones, crises or, or feeling in the void and not knowing what to do next. Um, it's not meant to be a therapy. I'm not a counselor, but it, it can help people um, kind of look for the guide signs, see what's going on, and and see what they can do to potentially rebalance that energy. Um, yeah, it's not a substitute for therapy or anything like that, but it is. But it is something else, another service that um, a lot of people have found very helpful. There is a testimonial page on liminalreiki.com, so you can see what people have had to say about their services with me. And right now, everything's virtual, so it doesn't matter where you are. You don't have to be living in my town or near where I live to have these services. 
you can, um, you know, I, right now I do everything through Zoom or WhatsApp or, or whatever method you prefer. Um, I can, you know, do these and, you know, and I've test, I, I took a number of test cases before I took it, took this to um, add to my offerings. But everything that I do in distance um, has been shown to have a, a really positive and profound effect. So, um, you know, so if that interests you, uh, please check that out. Um, visit me on social media if, if you do not, you know, if you, if you just like this and want to keep up also and, and don't want to get involved with the other, or maybe you do, or maybe you want to do all of it, check out Facebook, uh, Twitter, or Instagram. Uh, I'm listed as Cathonia Podcast, just one word on Twitter and Instagram, and as um, Cathonia Podcast, two words on Facebook, and also I'm Cathonia, just Cathonia, on, uh, on YouTube. So, um, you know, check me out wherever... You know, I, like I said, I, on, on Instagram, I do daily tarot readings, um, but I also, um, you know, will we'll post when there's a new podcast out, uh, just as I do to the others, and uh, sometimes I, I post a few other, you know, little things here and there if there's an update. So once again, thank you for joining in and listening. Um, I hope you'll continue to join me for these podcasts and that, um, you know, feel free to post comments, ask any questions, and if you're on YouTube, please subscribe. Um, you know, the, the more subscribers I have, um, the better it is for me on YouTube. Uh, so, you know, wherever you want to do. And of course, if you're somewhere, you can also leave a review of this podcast. What, what do you think? Well, every, every little thing that you do, um, helps and helps me, uh, be able to move this forward and be able to, you know, devote more time, money, and energy to the whole, uh, endeavor. So, um, again, much appreciation to those of you who have done, uh, work with me and, you know, been patrons or otherwise helped me so far. And uh, with that, I will see you in the next episode.